Hello, and welcome to the History of Japan podcast, episode 173, The Maelstrom, part 11. So, it's finally over. For a war that lasted a year and a half, that sure took a damn long while. So why did we spend so much time on it? Today we're going to wrap this series up by discussing the long-term impacts of the Russo-Japanese War on Russia, China, and Japan. So first, let's talk about Russia. Weren't they in the middle of a revolution when this whole thing came to an end or something? Well, yeah. Yeah, they were. But the 1905 revolution ended up going nowhere fast. By December, four months after the signing of the Portsmouth Treaty, the last diehard revolutionaries would be either dead or receiving their one-way tickets to Siberia. There are a couple of reasons why the revolution ended up failing. First, the Tsar was convinced by moderates in his government to make some concessions to the revolutionaries, a limited charter of rights, and a representative assembly. This convinced the majority of strikers and revolutionaries to leave the barricades on the streets, only the diehard anarchists, communists, and the like for whom no compromise with the system was possible were left. And of course, that remainder then did what leftist groups have done since the French Revolution, fall into infighting in a manner reminiscent of that one scene from Monty Python's Life of Brian with the conflict between the People's Front of Judea and the Judean People's Front. The army and navy also saw only limited defections to the revolutionaries. While there were some, most famously the crew of the battleship Potemkin, who would be immortalized by the Soviet filmmaker Sergei Eisenstein, their numbers were few and far between. Any revolution needs the military to go over to succeed, and in 1905 the Russian revolutionaries just couldn't make that happen. So then what were the lingering effects of the Russo-Japanese War for Russia? Well, first and foremost, a deep-seated antipathy towards the Japanese. The most common feeling in Russia after the war was that the Japanese had won by dishonest means, most notably with that early sneak attack on Port Arthur, which had set up early Japanese success. A desire to avenge the motherland against Japan was a big part of public consciousness during the late Tsarist period, and endured into the Soviet era. When Joseph Stalin finally did strike back against the Japanese in 1945, he framed the declaration of war to the Russian people as a process of historical revenge for the wrongs of the Japanese Empire against Manchuria. Indeed, one of the most famous propaganda photos of the Russian 1945 campaign in Manchuria shows Soviet marines raising the Soviet flag above Dalian's Lushenko district, what was once Port Arthur. You kicked us out once, but hey boys, we're back. And incidentally, maybe this whole narrative of a dastardly Japanese sneak attack sounds a bit familiar. Certainly there are some very noticeable similarities between Japan's actions at Port Arthur and the plan cooked up for an attack on Pearl Harbor 35 years later, but we'll get into that later. For now, let's just focus on the fact that the Russian reaction was a lot like the American response to December 7th, 1941. Anger and a desire for revenge. The Russo-Japanese War also did a lot to undermine confidence of the average Russian in the empire's military leadership. Russia's generals and admirals had ranged from serviceable mediocrity to outright incompetence, 
there hadn't really been any standout performers. Indeed, more than a few of the men who had led Russia's ground effort during the war were tried for incompetence afterwards. Noticeably missing from their ranks was Alexei Kropotkin, who was protected by Nicholas II from political reprisals for his failure. As you might imagine, this whole process did little to build up the confidence of average Russians in their military leadership, because apparently some of their leaders were incompetent except for the one guy who was actually supposed to be in charge. After the war, some reforms were implemented in the Russian army, to training and preparation and logistical arrangements. However, those reforms were nowhere near as comprehensive as they needed to be. For example, one of the reasons for the massive Russian defeat at the Battle of Tannenberg against Germany in 1914 was that orders were still being given without encoding them first, and now instead of being carried by runners, they were being broadcast over the radio. The military failures became emblematic among Russians of the larger failures of the Romanov dynasty and the aristocratic system upon which it was built. In 1905, those failures were not bad enough to undermine the legitimacy of the entire Romanov system, yet. But when the military continued to perform badly in World War I, and especially when the Tsar decided he would cut out the middlemen and go to the front himself, and continue to lose anyway, well, people started to ask questions. Questions like why all these idiot Aristos were still in charge, when they can't even win a damn war. And, at least from the Romanov perspective, it all went downhill from there. It's a bit of a stretch to draw a direct line from the Russo-Japanese War to the rise of the Soviet Union and the collapse of the Romanovs, because there's a lot of intervening stuff in the middle that sets up first the revolution in 1917, and then the success of the Bolsheviks over their competitors in that revolution, but there definitely is a relationship there. The Russo-Japanese War did not create the conditions for the triumph of Lenin and his comrades, but Russia's grand misadventure in the Far East did do a bit to lay the groundwork. Okay, so that's Russia, but what about China? Well, for China, the war's impact was more long-term than immediate. The Qing Dynasty was, after all, only indirectly involved in what was going on, or as indirectly as one can be when a war is being fought literally on your territory. China regained nominal sovereignty over some territory. Harbin and Mukden in particular returned to a degree of Chinese influence. However, the impact of that change was mitigated to a large extent by the fact that Japan was now a dominant power in Manchuria. Its direct authority was limited to the Liaodong Peninsula to the south, and the railways taken over from Russia, on the whole an arrangement more favorable to China, but still far from ideal. Chinese citizens also died in the war on both sides, most commonly either as civilians caught in the crossfire, because even with Japanese precautions that just happens in war, or as spies caught by either side. And of course, when a Chinese spy was arrested, there was rarely definitive proof one way or another as to the legitimacy of the charge. One of the most famous anecdotes on this subject has to do with Lu Xun, who is in many ways the godfather of modern Chinese literature. 
Lushun originally intended to be a doctor and was training for that job living in Japan when he saw a photo from the front during the war. The photo depicted Japanese officers preparing to execute a Chinese man accused of spying on behalf of the Russians. Looking on and enjoying the spectacle of the execution was a group of other Chinese men. Lushun himself described the scene, quote, At the time, I hadn't seen any of my fellow Chinese in a long time, but one day some of them showed up on a slide. One, with his hands tied behind him, was in the middle of the picture. The others were gathered around him. Physically, they were as strong or as healthy as anyone could ask, but their expressions revealed all too clearly that spiritually, they were calloused and numb. According to the caption, the Chinese whose hands were bound had been spying on the Japanese military for the Russians. He was about to be decapitated as a public example. The other Chinese gathered around him had come to enjoy the spectacle. End quote. This moment, one of his fellow countrymen being executed while his fellows looked on in apathy, or even enjoyment, convinced Lu Xun to abandon trying to cure the ills of the body in favor of trying to revive the Chinese spirit. He took up writing as a way to protest what he saw as the failures of his countrymen, and the rest, as they say, are the literary classics of early Chinese nationalism. You see, Lu Xun saw one thing very clearly. While the Japanese were not overtly targeting the Chinese during the war, that had way more to do with attempts to appear civilized than with any real interest in protecting Chinese lives. To Japanese officers in the field, Chinese people were pieces on a board who were, for now, worth more alive as PR tools than dead. That generosity and the situation that underlay it would not last forever. Indeed, in the long term, the most important effect of the Russo-Japanese War on China would be a lack of competitors, for lack of a better word, for Japan in the northern part of the country. Japanese influence and power in that region would continue to grow. While a Chinese Mandarin in 1905 might have considered it lucky that the Russians had been driven out of the region, a leader in the new nationalist regime 15, 25, or 35 years later would recognize clearly that Japanese ambition in the region long term was just as powerful as that of the Russians. It just took longer to develop. But what about Japan? That's what this podcast is supposed to be about, right? When we don't go on long tangents about Russian revolutionaries or whatever. Well, let's do a little survey of sectors of Japanese society, the government, the economy, and the military, and explore how the war impacted them. First, let's talk about the government. As I mentioned several episodes back, like a month and a half ago at this point, the Russo-Japanese War's single greatest impact on the Japanese government was a sea change in the way the imperial diet operated. The diet, recall, had been designed as a sop to public opinion far more than as an effective measure for the expression of public opinion. Ito Hirabumi, the drafter of the Japanese constitution, had designed the document very carefully to avoid any actual session of power to the representative assembly. It was designed as a sop to pro-representative democracy groups in Japanese society and to Western democracies, not as a really representative institution. A variety of powers baked into the constitution were designed to undercut the authority of the diet. 
The prime minister and his cabinet were appointed by the emperor, which is to say, appointed by the emperor's advisors, not selected from the majority political party. Political parties themselves were, as organized groups with an interest in party-style representative government, considered to be just on the right side of treasonable. The Diet could approve a budget, but failure to do so did not result in a government shutdown. Instead, the previous budget just carried over, which is a great way to avoid, say, the perennial threat of government shutdowns, which plagues the modern U.S. government, but not a great way to have a representative body that has real authority. In many ways, for its first 15 years of existence, the Diet was a rubber stamp for decisions made by the government's advisors. By 1905, some things had changed. For example, the Meiji leadership found it nigh impossible to wrangle the Diet without political parties to organize legislators for action. They had been forced to either co-opt parties or found their own to do so. However, the Russo-Japanese War was the real breakthrough moment for party politics because of that budgetary loophole. Remember, if the Diet didn't approve a new budget, the old budget carried over. That was fine for preventing a government shutdown, but if the military was constantly trying to increase its budget to prepare for war or pay for a war, last year's budget was not going to cut it anymore. All of a sudden, a clause in the Constitution that was supposed to prevent the Diet from being able to actually use its control of the budget to get its way was, well, used by the Diet to get its way. The Russo-Japanese War was the first time that the Diet refused to approve an increased military budget without some concessions. This time, the concessions were pretty limited, as the only thing requested was Diet involvement in the process of appointing cabinet members. However, in the future, this tactic would be used with increasing effect, and eventually the Diet would demand, and receive, the ultimate concession, the ability to appoint the Prime Minister itself rather than needing the Emperor's advisors to do so. The military's need for an ever-increasing budget actually gave the Diet the leverage it needed to advance the cause of representative government in Japan. That representative government would, to be sure, not be very long for this world. It would not survive the crises of the Great Depression and the rise of the military in the 1930s. But still, the brief 10-ish year golden age of representative politics in Japan before World War II owed its existence to the Russo-Japanese War, and to the realization that the Diet actually did have some leverage in politics. But what about the military? They're the heart of this whole adventure, after all. Well, for the Navy, victory over Russia was really its coming-out party. Remember, before 1905, the Navy was clearly the subordinate military service in Japan. The Army got the first pick of everything. Now it was the Navy that had saved the day and the Army that had failed to get the job done. The Navy could now compete much more openly with the Army for priority in terms of resources, and suddenly, the Navy leadership was way less interested in towing the Army's line than it had been before. Togo Heihachiro became an overnight hero in Japan, and indeed, as we discussed well over 120 episodes ago, all around the world. The army, by contrast, was forced to face a stark reality. It had gone all in against Russia, thrown literally everything it had into Manchuria, and failed to get the job done. 
in the end, this victory would do more harm than good, both for Japan and for the institutions responsible for defending Japan. While the old system of the army leading and the navy following had its flaws, an island nation that emphasizes land power is going to have some difficulties projecting its strength, after all. In the new order of things, the two wings of the military began to fight each other for resources. The army and navy increasingly became rivals rather than collegial services. And I don't mean rivals in the sense of things get a little hairy during the army-navy football game or whatever. I mean that when the army demanded an expansion of its divisional strength to control the territory that had been seized from Russia, and the navy demanded a larger surface fleet to confront new threats, neither side was willing to back down and the whole damn thing triggered a budgetary crisis. Part of the reason that neither side was willing to back down now was that the war had split their strategic objectives as well. For the Navy, Russia wasn't a problem anymore. Vladivostok was not a big enough port to house a real fleet, and at any rate, when the Russians did start rebuilding their military, their attention was concentrated on their German neighbors. Instead, the Imperial Japanese Navy concentrated its attention far more on the other sea powers in the Asian region, Great Britain, and the United States. Initially, that attention was not with the purpose of ultimately fighting a war against either of those powers. Britain and Japan were allies, after all, and the United States had helped Japan negotiate an end to the war. It was, in fact, merely that the Navy was following the advice of the American naval theorist Alfred Thayer Mahan, who argued that a country should gauge its naval strength against the strongest possible power regardless of ties between them and it. After all, one never knows what the future could bring. The army, meanwhile, had not vanquished the Russian threat. Russian forces were now out of Manchuria, but there was nothing stopping them from coming back. For the army, enemy number one was still the Russians. And that animosity towards Russia would become only stronger after the Russian Revolution, when ideological enmity towards the Bolsheviks, as the army was pretty conservative in Japan, joined with a traditional clash of great power politics. With divided priorities, it's not surprising that the army and navy ended up arguing with each other over budgetary issues and that neither side was willing to back down. In many ways, the two services were unable to reconcile. Even 35 years later, as Pearl Harbor loomed, the army was still side-eyeing Russia and considering a potential strike on the Soviet Union, rather than backing the Navy's plan for war against the U.S. The tensions between the army and Navy dissolved the bonds between the two services, as each side fought a scrappy war for allocations against the other. It wasn't really until the two factions found a mutual enemy, that enemy being American-oriented politicians in the 1920s, who were willing to sign on to things like arms limitation treaties, that they were able to reconcile. Even then, the rivalry remained. For example, one of the reasons the Navy was so hesitant to throw up a red flag in 1940 and 1941 and say, whoa there guys, we cannot beat the United States in a war, and what the hell are you people talking about, was rooted in institutional politics between the Army and Navy. If the Navy admitted it could not beat the U.S., it would also have to admit that the budgetary allocations it had asked for were pointless, 
since Japanese naval supremacy in the Pacific, having a stronger navy than the Americans, was an impossible dream. Nobody in the navy was willing to admit that, and so the march towards war continued. The rise of the navy also created problems down the line because of the man responsible for it. Togo Heihachiro was, by nature, an irascible and easily angered man who had a strong sense of himself and who was more than willing to confront anybody who got in his way. Togo's victory also made him essentially the godfather of the navy. Even when he did not hold formal leadership positions, his authority was pretty hard to challenge. Like most folks, Togo also got a bit set in his ways as he got older. In particular, he was of an older school of naval tacticians who believed very strongly in the supremacy of battleships as the greatest weapon on the seas. A nation's naval strength, Togo believed, was measured first and foremost by the number of battleships it could send out to sea. Togo held on to this belief even as the facts on the ground, or I guess on the ocean, began to challenge it, first as submarines and torpedo boats proved that it was possible to bring down battleships pretty cheaply, and then, far more seriously, as aircraft carriers became the face of modern naval warfare. Togo fought against those in the navy, like the upstart officer Yamamoto Isoroku, who wanted to shift the focus of Japanese naval power away from battleships and towards naval aviation. His status as the man who had won the Battle of Tsushima made him uniquely difficult to challenge. Indeed, while Togo himself did not live to see them completed, his ideas were the driving force behind one of the most uniquely wasteful projects of the Pacific War, at least on the Japanese side. The decision to invest in the Yamato-class super battleships, which cost so much and accomplished so very little. It was only after Togo died in 1934 that the reformist wing of the navy began to turn things around, and by then it was simply too late to fundamentally challenge the underlying assumptions on which Togo had built the modern navy, at least in time for war with the United States. The army, meanwhile, had to put a game face on what had been, from its perspective, a really bad war. After hundreds of thousands of Japanese soldiers dead or wounded, the army had failed to win a single truly decisive victory. Even at Port Arthur, where the entire Russian force ultimately had been captured, the cost for Japan had been incredibly high. And though the war was now over, the threat for the army was not gone. The Russian navy was no longer a threat to Japan, but the Russian army had only retreated across the Amur River, defying Manchuria from Russia. They could come back. So how would the army respond to the challenge of the war? What reforms could be necessary to ensure that next time Japan and Russia clashed, Japan came out on top? Well, the Japanese army did convene a committee to discuss the lessons learned from the war, but its takeaways were not what you might expect. You see, the committee's conclusions were nothing like, say, the suggestions for radical military reforms, which cropped up in most Western militaries after World War I. There was no discussion of a change away from infantry wave attacks or bayonet charges. The committee stated that the problem with the war was not that the Japanese were not prepared to fight it, but that Japanese soldiers had lacked true fighting spirit. 
They were not tough enough. They gave up too easily. Had they really been willing to push themselves at Liaoyang or Mukden, for example, they could have encircled and trapped the Russians and not just beaten them. Now that sounds crazy, right? Japanese soldiers had died in the tens of thousands at both of those battles. To suggest that they somehow had not tried hard enough seems nuts. Really, this attitude was an outgrowth of an issue present in the army, navy, and really most militaries around the world. Militaries, by their nature, are very insular. They're professional clubs that tend not to let in outsiders. They're also culturally self-reinforcing. When you join, you're educated in the cultural values of that military. What that means is that militaries as institutions tend to be very resistant to attempts to change their values. And for the Japanese army, the idea of spiritual and mental toughness, that Japanese soldiers could beat anybody one-on-one, -on -one, was deeply wrapped up in its own sense of identity. Moving away from that by saying, well, yeah, maybe we need to buy some more artillery pieces too, would involve challenging the assumptions the army itself was built on. Some level of civilian oversight might have made that possible. After all, we've probably all heard some variation on the idea that a fresh pair of eyes on a problem can be the key to unlocking it. For example, during World War I, it was not a British admiral who came up with the idea of protecting Allied shipping by using well-armed convoys. It was actually a civilian who went against the conveyed military wisdom, which was that individual ships off on their own made it more likely that at least a few would make the trip. That kind of oversight, however, was not possible for the Japanese army. The imperial constitution allowed only the emperor any real kind of oversight role. And of course, in practice, the emperor was just not involved. What this meant for the Japanese army was that nobody was really willing to stand up and challenge the idea that the army's strength was spiritual toughness and disciplined foot soldiers. Everyone currently in a leadership position was deeply invested in the existing culture of the army, especially since the army was also a political institution where soldiers were supposed to be indoctrinated as a bulwark against poisonous ideas like socialism and democracy. So to anybody with a cursory knowledge of military history, it might seem obvious what the problems were that held back the Imperial Japanese army. A lack of emphasis on keeping supplies open, a lack of artillery, an emphasis on tactics that had become outmoded with the advent of barbed wire, machine guns, and spotlights. But for the members of the army, confronting that reality would mean challenging the assumptions that lay at the heart of their own self-image, and indeed, the army's role in Japanese society. So 10, 20 years after the Russo-Japanese War, the army was not having serious discussions about adopting new technologies or new strategies. Instead, it was pumping out pamphlets about valorous Japanese soldiers who had thrown themselves against the defenses of Port Arthur like human bullets, and exhorting the next generation of Japanese soldiers to follow that brave example. In the end, I think that's probably the most pernicious legacy of the war. Japan technically won it, and that victory, however hollow it was, allowed the army and navy to put on blinders and assume that everything would play out the same way in the future. Should we launch a sneak attack on Pearl Harbor? Sure, it worked on the Russians. Should we launch mass human wave attacks against fortified Soviet defenses? 
Oh, it'll be Mukden all over again. We'll win out for sure. Can our outgunned Imperial Navy face off against the Americans? Well, we won at Tsushima. We'll do it again. Except, of course, that they could not. That confidence was not founded in reality, but in overestimation of the power of a rickety Russian state that had done more to defeat itself than the Japanese had done to defeat it. In the end, that hubris would have its price. That's all for this week. Thank you very much for listening. For more about this week's episode or any other episode, or to submit ideas for future episodes, check out the podcast webpage at www.historyofjapan.wordpress.com or our Facebook page at facebook.com slash historyofjapanpodcast. Thanks again for listening. I'll see you in two weeks' time, because next week is American Thanksgiving, and I won't really be in a position to record because I expect to be in a solid 72-hour food coma. So I'll wish you a preemptive happy Thanksgiving, and I'll see you in December.